This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. There's something both comic and confronting about Steve Toltz's latest novel, Here Goes Nothing. Death doesn't seem to be the end of things. So, Steve, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Angus Mooney, your narrator, is dead. Now, this provides you with boundless opportunities to explore new ways of looking at things, but it does give the reader a bit of an existential crisis, or even for that matter, Angus, an existential crisis. Um, Yeah, look, I think that it was a fun prospect to contemplate an afterlife that maybe, uh, you know, we haven't really seen before. When I decided I wanted to follow my character beyond the grave and I thought about um, all the ways over the centuries that the afterlife has been presented, I think it's kind of interesting to see that there hasn't been a lot of kind of innovation there. It's sort of always heaven and hell. There's always a reward or a punishment. And it's sort of generally clear. There's a structure, there's a hierarchy, there's an authority figure, whether it's God or the devil. And one knows that whenever one's arrived, you're there for eternity. That's part of human arrogance and human kind of hubris to imagine that we know uh, what's coming. And I thought, you know, if there was something, it's likely to be something that we don't understand. Uh, so I thought I would compound the mysteries and uh, make it just about as confusing as this life. Well, it's very comic. And in fact, some of the style of your writing is almost like stand-up comedy. Angus is talking about his upbringing as an orphan, At St Michael's, the bishop stood at the pulpit beneath an ostentatious cross, carrying on melodramatically like he was a character in an Agatha Christie novel. It's always the same with these guys. They never let you forget that Jesus is dead, that it was foul play, and that you're the main suspect. It's interesting that, yes, the stand-up, and yet you've linked it to this extended narrative as well. Yeah, I think that's just the product of being passionate about multiple things simultaneously during the kind of formation years of writing. You know, a big influence on me in my kind of late teens was the prose writing of Woody Allen and, you know, his ridiculous kind of comedic short stories, which were always kind of parodies of kind of 19th and 20th century French and Russian literature. So, you know, you would have the gags that worked on one level and then you would have a reference of um, a sort of a great work of literature. And I remember being very kind of inspired to find out what these works of literature were about. And then also, you know, just laughing at the ridiculous uh, jokes he was writing. And so I've always been like a storyteller primarily. So I like to tell stories. I really love literature. I really love comedy. And they just sort of all came together for me in uh, what became my style, which is now sort of inescapable for me as a writer. We have Angus meeting up with Gracie. Gracie is a marriage celebrant, but she turns convention on the head. And here's a bit from one of her homilies to the uh, prospective couple. 
You've decoded each other's confusing signals, haven't you? You've overcome your ambivalence, right? You saw no viable alternative, did you? Well, maybe you did, but you both elbowed competitors out of the way. And now, despite totally reasonable qualms and misgivings, you've closed the door to other romantic possibilities for the medium-term future. Congratulations, bitches. It's an arranged marriage, and you arranged it. It just fills you with mirth. I think that it was fun to write because Gracie, as a wedding celebrant, you know, becomes kind of very popular and she's sort of back-to-back weddings every weekend. You know, I don't know how many weddings you've been to, but they're all fairly similar. So I just thought it would be, you know, that that kind of thing probably would work for people. I think people want something memorable. Um, Perhaps they don't want something as cynical uh, or as outrageous as what Gracie has to say, but um, in my universe, it works very well. cynicism in some ways is a reality it isn't enjoyable to write a truth teller character is someone who perhaps says things that are say like psychologically true or astute about human motivations but that is you know not normally said out loud because it's sort of not polite And it's not the kind of thing where it's like you're saying what everybody's thinking. You're saying what's true that people haven't perhaps thought before. This brings us then to Owen Fogel. And he's actually dying. And he comes to Gracie's house claiming to have lived in the house previously. It's curious that Gracie has lived a lot of her life in the digital world, posting things online. And Owen has created a reality almost through the digital world. How much can you tell us about Owen? Well, I enjoy writing Owen because uh, I wanted to write a villain in the piece. He's someone who is at the end of his life and it's fun to write a character who doesn't have anything to hide in, a, in, a, in one respect. And in other respects, he's got a lot to hide. But I guess also the, you know, the digital world is the world that we live in now. You know, it's very much the air we breathe. And it's just sort of impossible to write anything without at some point touching on uh, social media and, you know, this kind of necessity that people feel that, They need to broadcast their lives and comment on other people's lives and, um, you know, just basically be heard. It raises that whole question of what is our real life? Is it the one we post online or the one we live? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it should be the one we live, but increasingly it's the one we um, post online. And every study that comes out, which sort of shows how many hours, you know, whether teenagers or adults, everybody spends online, it's shocking. And it is no way to be human. Angus is murdered in the course of the narrative and ends up in a form of afterlife, which is somewhat unexpected. It's a place called Ligeria. Interestingly, you've given it a name, but it's plagued with the similar problems that we face on Earth. Yeah, well, look, what happens when we die in this book is sort of a, it's a question. And is it just another level? 
Is it, you know, of many or is it the only other level? You know, what happens after you die in death? You know, the afterlife has an afterlife, maybe. The question of how one would feel about that world sort of relates more or less back to how you feel about this one. Meanwhile, back on Earth, we have a mosquito-borne plague that's similar to Ebola. So apart from the fact that Angus is dead, Owen is dying, it seems now that the rest of the world will die. So we're faced with these questions of life and death. And all of this leads to some very interesting questions. And it's a case of how we negotiate with your humour. Are you serious or should we just laugh it off? You are not a body with a soul, but a soul with a body. Are we to read anything more into that? Yeah, that's interesting. At some stage as I was writing the book, I thought the kind of mission I gave myself as a storyteller was, you know, apocalypse on earth, revolution in heaven. That's what I was sort of going for. And of course, when you get to the end of days or when you get to a place where there are endless mysteries, so I enjoy not knowing. There's, a, you know, a lot of people don't enjoy not knowing and so they'll give you an answer. Like I think somewhere in the book I talk about Gracie, who's very spiritual when they're talking about ghosts. You know, she says she believes in unexplained phenomenon. And, you know, Owen is sort of like, well, you've just explained it. If you say it's ghosts, then you've just explained it. So, in fact, people uh, find unexplained phenomenon very difficult to sit with. And so we look for an explanation. And the interesting thing is that when we search for an explanation, we usually just want to pick one. We want to pick one thing and go, well, maybe it's that. Okay, it's that. I, do I believe that or not? It's sort of a yes or no rather than... Let's come up with a hundred things that it could be and, you know, ponder all of these different ideas. And that's kind of what I'm doing in the book is just asking a lot of questions and posing a lot of possibilities. So instead of closing it down, as we do in society, to one thing, which becomes the social convention, yes, you've opened it up and you've called ghosts actually uh, spectronauts. I love that word. Well, that's also, I wanted to, um, I wanted to write a a story in which the supernatural was sort of seen through a technological lens. Uh, So, yeah, that was also just another part of this writing. Another line here, knowledge is not worth knowing. It was sometime over the last few years with a lot of sort of hectic world events happening and I'm currently living in LA and you know so I'm I'm in the United States and so living through the Trump years and you know I realize that it's it's actually possible I always thought you know you've got to read the news and be informed and then I realized well it's really possible to be over informed and that's you know as in you know you read the news and then you might listen to a a podcast about the news and then you listen to sort of a you know people talking about the thing that you'd read and um rather than just absorb a little bit of the information and perhaps you know get some understanding uh people are spending 
hours and hours and hours consuming and reconsuming the same stories and the same bits of information. And so, you know, I think out of exhaustion of so the 24 hour news cycle and just the endless um, information that flies at you, I thought it would be, it was just sort of a relief to write a character who felt aloof, should we say, from all of the, you know, the noise of the world. And a lot of those stories that we consume have been manipulated or contrived these days. That's the other problem with our reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it has become kind of very difficult to get a sense of what's real and find your trusted sources. And yeah, so, you know, writing this book was kind of to have a break from that a little bit. At the end of the novel, towards <laughs> the end, Gracie has some life and death questions of her own to face, especially for the next generation. But do you choose life to give the opportunity of someone to have life? Do you choose death, which could be just as viable in terms of an appropriate decision to make? Yeah, well, you know, there are a lot of people, certainly of a younger generation, who are making reproductive decisions based on climate change, for instance. In some respects, it's ludicrous. And then on some days, you, you know, it seems actually a very reasonable tact to take. So uh, we have big decisions to make in our lives, in our careers and in our, you know, choices of where we're going to live. And a lot of our cities have priced us out. So, you know, the decisions that we make are not as easy as they once perhaps seemed. Well, if the reader wants to find out more, if the listener wants to find out more about life after death and the way it's going to be led and the potential in that world of Ligaria, and if they want a good laugh at the same time, (laughs) the novel is Here Goes Nothing. The author is Steve Toltz. And it's a Penguin Random House release. So, Steve, thank you very much for talking with me today. It was great to chat to you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. Celebrities and A-listers. We constantly see them on social platforms and magazine covers and hear about what they have been up to. Michaela Clements and Anjuli Data seem to know a lot more about them. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> well, the end of your book, The View Was Exhausting, a journalist writes about Whitman de Gore. They spent the whole day together. They're playing pool now and... <laughs> It's the journalist's reflections on Whitman. Love her or hate her, it's easy to project a tragic narrative on Whitman. Her troubled rise, her fall from grace. You can read her as an outsider stigmatised by a cutthroat industry or a control freak who remains Hollywood's most high-strung diva. Over our time together, though, I kept noticing her gentle swagger the easy way she lined up her pool shots, the sure hand she rested on Leo Milanowski's shoulder. She looked amused, as though she had a private joke no one knew about. She seemed calm, in control, her sharp, handsome face relatively untroubled by the scandals cast upon it. It seemed almost as though she was having fun. Having fun? Well, (laughs) we better know about 
Whitman de Gaulle from the beginning of the book. So what was she like then? Uh, she was not having fun at the beginning <laughs> of the book. So the book starts with Whitman Tagore, who is this kind of incredibly successful A-list movie star. She's British, but she's of Indian descent, so she grew up in the UK with Indian parents. And she's had a sort of troubled rise to fame, mostly because of the kind of press scandals that have plagued her since her early days. As She's got a bit of a temper, and she's not very good at hiding her emotions, especially in the young days. So she's always had a bit of a complicated relationship with the press. And when the book starts, she's having yet another scandal of a very messy breakup with a very nasty boyfriend who's saying all sorts of nasty things about her. So she's run off to Saint-Tropez to try to improve her image yet again. The journalist wrote about her rise, her fall from grace. And this all started seven years ago when she was on a diet which excluded everything apart from vodka and soda. (laughs) And that led to texting and it led to problems. So Marie was employed and helped with the fallout. Marie is Whitman's publicist. Um, She is a character that was really fun to write and a a really interesting character to kind of reflect Wynne. Because if Wynne is the public face of celebrity control, the kind of person you see being so sure of herself, so glamorous, Marie is the person who is masterminding in the background. She is the puppet master. She is pulling the strings. But what we wanted was for Wynne and Marie to have a really close friendly but very collegial relationship they're not mates but they work really really well together and they really respect each other and they respect what the other one has to do to keep the kind of ball rolling and to keep the machinery smooth of as Whitman kind of makes her great climb into fame I think there's a line where Wynne has had just another big scandal where it seems like maybe she's in love with someone she's not supposed to be in love with and Marie kind of says you do whatever you want like it's not up to me to tell you what your love life should be I'm just controlling how we feed it out into the world and I think that's 100% their relationship she's very controlling but only on the side of publicity and not on any other side of Wynne's life talk about this what did Marie say when Whitman was photographed on a plane with the wrong Jane Austen book (laughs) she calls it basic (laughs) she said she's reading Pride and Prejudice which is of course a beloved one and I think Marie wants her to be reading something a little bit more obscure a little bit more interesting enigmatic yeah exactly (laughs) well this is a quote from the book Marie wants Whitman to walk that difficult line between calm and boring now showing vulnerability but surviving. And this is because she's had that catastrophic breakdown with boyfriend Nathan Spence. So this moment where Nathan Spencer, her ex-boyfriend, is has gone off about her on TV. He's made a big deal about how controlling she is. He's kind of ripped back the, the curtains to show how much work she has to put into being a celebrity. And of course, we don't want our celebrities to put in work. We want them to be effortlessly amazing. We want to just imagine that they roll out of bed ready to be kind of entertaining but also calm we don't want them to be too dramatic we don't want them to be too emotional and win is often all of those things and that's something that she and marie really have to struggle to to hold on to marie's constant advice quote stay calm don't panic stick to the narrative and that has involved leo malansky What did Wynne think of Leo? I think when they first met, she thought, as many people do when they first meet Leo, like, what a privileged party boy, because that's what he is. We kind of came up with the concept for his character as a bit of a male Paris Hilton. So he's a 
heir to a big hotel empire. He doesn't really have a job. He doesn't really have many skills except for being pretty famous and pretty beautiful. Yeah, they're a very interesting mix of opposites attract because they both come from completely different backgrounds. Leo's always been in the public eye. His parents are very famous. And also he has the kind of level of privilege that being a white man you have Um, but at the same time they have this sort of almost common thread between them I think they both immediately recognize something about the other that kind of spark of familiarity where you're like oh this is one of my people Um, and Wynne and Leo both have that about each other another quote fake date for attention and this is what exactly happens Leo enjoyed a campaign whether it was setting up a, a studio space or working with Wynne and that's what it was he was just fake dating her because whenever they were together they made headlines they had a connection now but as you say perhaps not when they if, when they were 16 leo was rich white boy at a swiss boarding school and win british asian girl from the suburbs of london with one weirdo friend <laughs> so who's whitman's weirdo friend so that's shift who is kind of a uh, i think at one point we call her like electronic dance princess so she's a kind of a dj slash artist um and she lives in canada um at the time the book starts but she grew up with Wynne in london i think to be honest the best friend is such a kind of beloved character in any rom-com that that was one that it was kind of both really important that we got her right but also she arose very organically from the like very first draft very first pages we were like obviously Wynne's gonna have a best friend and we kind of wanted her to also be a little bit in the public eye but in this much more alternative space and she's kind of much kookier I would say Mm -hmm. so she kind of does deal with press but it's more like reviews of her albums but the other thing that was really important with Shift was that she was somebody who had known Wynne from the beginning Mm. so she knows Wynne before Wynne is famous they meet at high school Um, and that was really important because you need somebody who's able to track the changes in Wynne you need somebody who's able to go you didn't used to be like that and maybe some some of the changes are good and some of them are not good Um, and And Shift is able to call that out well we know at the very beginning this best friend is going to get married and she's going to get married to Charlie a good mate of Leo's older brother and the book finishes with the wedding and many surprises with many people wanting Wynne's attention why can't I come first sometimes and another pick me everybody wants her attention except her mother and her Indian relatives so what's happening here <laughs> it's a good question <laughs> I think um, the the relationship between Wynne and her mother was one that developed quite organically and then the more we paid attention to it, the more it required real care and attention. They have a relationship which is probably quite similar or something relatable to many people where there's this level of distance. They love each other, they're very bound to each other, but they don't quite understand each other. Um, And especially because Wynne has had this kind of massive leap into a world that her mother can't guide her in, she can't advise her in, you know, how do you kind of give your child advice on being a celebrity? And at the same time, she doesn't completely get it. I think she she doesn't completely understand why the things Wynne does, the things Wynne wears are so important. And so that's a big divide between them. And then I think a big kind of like puzzle piece that puts these sets of relationships together is the fact that Leo and Wynne's mother turn out to get on really well. And they kind of have this like buddy friendship and he spends 
spends a lot of time looking after her and they have a very similar sense of humor and they kind of like enjoy poking fun at Wynne in the same way in ways that sometimes she finds quite difficult I think yeah so I feel like that's that's kind of a big part of the way that Wynne and Leo's relationship develops is the fact that he is able on some level to understand her mother and almost to interpret for Wynne kind of like when your mum says this thing that seems very cold and uncaring about this part of your career that you're really excited about for example she doesn't show up to your red carpet events even though you try to invite her maybe it's just because she's really nervous and Mm. she doesn't really know how to act or how to dress in those spaces and I think sometimes you need a partner to explain those things to you because you've been living that life for you know 20 30 years so you don't know how to get out of the bubble and look at it from the outside. Now both of you have written independently but this is your first co-written book so who's responsible for the description? The thing is we're both responsible for all of it. It's kind of a a funny little writing process that we have where we take turns writing various scenes and we would advance the plot along ourselves and then for us what's really important is the editing process and that's when we basically rewrite and rewrite and rewrite so many times that for the most part, if you read me a sentence, I would not be able to tell you which one of us wrote it. It's almost as if, or I could maybe be like, I love that particular word. So that word was probably me, but the second clause sounds like Ange. And I think we have examples of like, I think with Leo specifically, the character of Leo, right at the end of our editing process, our publisher was like, can you just throw in a paragraph at the beginning of what he actually looks like? Just so we have the picture of him in our heads. And we were like, oh God, yeah, we probably should do that. (laughs) And then we both knew in our heads what he looked like, but we were sitting there like, how do you put this on paper without being too specific? You know, his nose was two inches long and things like that so in the end we were sitting in the kitchen and we were sort of like we were like we need to like toss a ball back and forth but we didn't have one so we just had an onion in from the kitchen (laughs) and we like rolled it back and forth along the floor we're like what about this thing about him what about this thing about him and slowly wrote notes and notes and then this paragraph kind of formed that way I also thought the sex scenes were good so did you have to throw the onion in the the, the (laughs) that one came a little more naturally (laughs) yeah I think it was again very similar where it was um yeah sometimes we write literally almost over each other's shoulders um and sometimes we write back and forth a bit where one person will take a turn with a scene and then the other person will go and edit it but yeah I think the the sex scenes were probably one of the back and forth ones a bit because sex scenes especially reveal so much about characters no pun intended, a kind of climatic moment within the book. And so they required a lot of drafting and redrafting to get exactly right. The View Was Exhausting is an inside look at how the rich and famous may live and perhaps an insightful look at the control that publicity plays in their lives, co-written by Michaela Clements and Julie Data. Thank you very much. Thanks thank for you. having us. Yeah, thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.